You are listening to Future Net Zero, a platform to help businesses and the wider community improve our lives and our planet by achieving net zero. Welcome to episode two of our series, Gaia Says No, exploring how human effects of a biosphere could be reversed if we decide to take action. Join Future Net Zero founder Summit Bose, along with environmental campaigner Alex Forbes and analyst Alex Millward. There will be some strong language. Welcome to Gaia Says No, uh, a podcast brought to you by Future Net Zero. My name is Sumit Bose and I'm joined by Angus Forbes and Alex Billwood. And we are in the second episode of our series looking at kind of the balance of the planet, energy, uh, net zero and kind of consumerism. We're going to look at the topic, I suppose, that's partly science, guys, isn't it? And partly really us, consumerism why we should care so let, let's just throw that one out there right now why should we care if we're here and gone tomorrow someone else can clear up the mess yeah no there's 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 certainly that sort of philosophical point of you know hey let the humans die out and, and all of that but i don't I, I i don't think that's really what the human race is is about you know we're we're we want to progress, we want to strive, we want to explore, we want to better ourselves. And I think in bettering ourselves, we should better um, the health of the planet. I think it's a striving element and the planet and our scientists are saying it's not in the best of shape. What now? Yeah, now. I think it is now. I think the beauty is, is that our science of the last 50, 60 years that has been dedicated to looking at the health of the planet um, has got to a point where they can give us a very clear report card. They're able to look at the what did the planet look like 500 and 1,000 years ago and what have we done essentially post-Second World War. And when they're reporting that, giving us that report card, they're sort of saying to humanity, you're getting an E minus. That's, that's really what they're saying. What, what do you mean? All right, let's, let's, let's just um, uh, bring in Alex for a second. Before we get the, the facts and figures from Angus, should we care now about the science? Because you could say we could have had this argument 10 years ago, or we could have it 10 years from now. Yeah, I think the, the science actually is is learning but the the big fundamentals haven't changed for quite a while but the philosophical question i I tend to agree i I did ask myself you know does it really matter in planetary terms four and a half billion years you know if human another another set of mass extinctions happen does it matter gaia carries on and at some point ultimately the sun implodes and the planet yeah dies anyway um, and we're all gone. And, and yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, if we're, we're talking geologically, this is nothing, isn't it? Yeah, and as powerful as we are, I don't think we can stop that implosion and, and sort of wiping us out. But, you know, maybe the uh, the great entrepreneurs have got rocket ships and we can go and inhabit another planet by then. You know, I did ask myself that, and it sort of came down to similar perspective to, uh, to Angus in that you know, we are animal, you know, largely... It's in our nature to reproduce. It's in our nature to um, you know, carry on uh, the clan, our kind and, and kin, uh, and make it better. So, sort of decided that you know we we do need to do something that makes the earth inhabitable for the future generations, um, and that's part of our own DNA continuation, and that is human as well. But but um, obviously, we we're at a, 
you know, the whole point of this podcast series is that we seem to be at a point where with the coronavirus, with, you know, things like Extinction Rebellion and, uh, you know, Greta Thunberg and, you know, the, the whole UN pushing, we're suddenly doing things in a way it seems like time is running out. I'll explore that in a second, but couldn't we really look back and go, actually, could we not have said this 30 years ago, 40 years ago? I think the warnings happened, have been happening probably since about the 70s. You know, we all think of Jane Fonda. We had the, the, the meshed protests of both the, of the Cold War and nuclear proliferation were there with the environmental protests. People knew about the diseasing of rivers and things like that. So I think the, the awareness was, was there and we could have been having this podcast or radio interview back then. But I think the difference now is our scientists saying that there are tipping points, such as CO2, but also in a biodiversity and the number of plant species that are on Earth, the the soil erosion, so that we're being told actually it's pretty urgent now, uh, as opposed to the sort of awakening awareness of 30, 40 years ago. And is that because we're more open to it, or do you think that's just because the science has, has sort of caught up? I think the consequences are better known now. Um, so you'll hear through this great pause that we're going through the number of lives that have actually been saved as a result of lower pollution and lower emissions. And so you, we're able to track that. And so I think the, the clear and present danger is becoming more apparent to humankind. In the 70s, I mean, you'll remember the hole in the ozone layer was a, was a massive yeah. thing and we fixed it. You know, there were some people who knew and cared about these things back then, but uh, now the, the danger is more clear and more present. And as we've seen with the virus response, um, you know, we're, we're throwing everything at it. And, you know, it would be much, much cheaper to throw everything at the environment much earlier than we do later. It's much easier to mitigate than to adapt and repair. And, and uh, you know, the science is saying that with the length of time we're going to need to abate, you know, just one dimension, be it carbon emissions, will take us those 10 years required. And, and if we don't get it done in those next 10 years, then the tipping points become irreversible. And no matter how much money and ingenuity we throw at it, we, we won't be able to stop the ball from rolling and we'll be into the unsustainable four degree plus world. That, that's, that's what the scientists are telling us now, you know, 10 years to fix it. And the, they're also telling us that the current run rate is not on course to avert the tipping points. Well, so what do you mean tipping point? You're talking about commitments that we, we, we should have made. Again, I'm not a scientist, so you've got to decide who you trust. Um, I like to look at the UN's Intergovernmental Panel for Climate Change, which is a science-based backed group with transparent approach and lots of peer review, which is essential for getting consensus. And, and they look at the next critical 10 years to avert a tipping point where we won't be able to recover the run runaway of the climate changes. So you know, all, all of that guidance is keep the Earth's temperature within two degrees maximum of pre-industrial temperatures. And in order to achieve that, they give a guidance of carbon parts per million required in the atmosphere. In the last major report they did, which was back in 2014, and we're due another one, uh, imminently with an update 
Uh, but in 2014, so pre-Paris COP21, they were already telling us we were off track. Uh, we were heading towards a 2,100, a 2,100 parts per million of a thousand and a degree of four degrees uh, and above with what they called a high degree of confidence from their scenario modeling. And we'd need to decarbonize uh, large parts of our economic system to keep that to within the 400 to 450 parts per million in order to stay below two degrees. And we've seen with the pace of change that we're moving at, it's not fast enough to give a high degree of confidence in the next 10 years that we will achieve that goal and we will avoid the tipping point. Hence, caring now, I think, is, is important. And I guess, you know, arguably back to the conversation uh, on the last podcast as to why speak up now we need more people speaking up to help make the changes necessary to get quality of life and continuation of life with a sustainable planet obviously i revealed my true evil darth vader moment in the last podcast where i said that i didn't kind of really believe in man-made climate change i believed in man-made destruction of the of the biosphere of the planetary system of pollution of overfishing plastic so although i I'm not too sure about us affecting the global temperature. The question that might be asked is, obviously, do we care about the global temperature as a planet? Does the planet care if it gets warmer by three or four degrees? Are we just being selfish? And we're thinking about ourselves uh, and what we would do and how we would cope and how our societies would cope because the planet's been hotter and the planet's been colder. And, you know animals and plants will recover if we weren't here as we can clearly see in this as uh, this little pause as you called it uh, alex in terms of coronavirus well while life's on hold around the planet animals and and plants are recovering so are we are we just talking about this as a temperature change that affects us and that's where we really ought to be saying instead of we're trying to save the planet we're trying to save us I think this very, it's yes, certainly it's a very human human endeavor to ensure that the ecosystem services come to us. Uh, humans act in self-interest. Yeah, but I think it is multi-dimensional. You know, there's a moral there's moral elements of of killing other species. Yeah, of of course. There's intergenerational elements where where why not let the people who are living in thirty twenty as opposed to 2020, make the decision mm. on, on how they, whether they want to wreck the planet or not. So I don't, but we are talking, I think, on this podcast about, you know, human future and the human lightening of the load and the human protection of, of the planet. Overall, we're talking about the human environmental nexus. We're not, I suppose... Holly saying, throw humanity in the bin and we're only here to protect the planet. I think we're coming from the human side. Well, I mean, that's obvious. We, we can't not be. But if, if, you know, if you were being so esoteric to think about it, the planet could do damn well without us and, sure. and, and really wouldn't give a damn if it had a four degree temperature rise because it's had far more in the past yeah you can say that from a total planetary thing but there are a lot of animal species for example who the sex of their young is derived from the temperature at which they mate so crocodiles and alligators will produce male or female offspring by the temperature of air temperature and water temperature in which they mate so you know you can say yeah let's just throw it at four degrees but for the last, you know, 10,000 years, they've 
produced male and female baby alligators because you know there's been 280 degrees 280 parts per million of carbon dioxide producing 14 and a half degrees average atmospheric surface temperature you know we really are in that uh driving seat with mother nature now we're really in into that cockpit and we have to decide how we're going to behave alex do you think anyone gave a damn a hundred years ago when oil and gas was all the rage you know you go back to the 20s you know that was the beginnings of exploration in saudi arabia go back to the to the 50s and 60s and even the 70s we talked about in the last episode it was all about kind of hey let's expand the world no one really cared about what the future generation we, we didn't really it wasn't in our nature to do so it was about expansion and if you ask people in india sub-saharan africa parts of you know malaysia china doesn't matter where you are brazil who are still living in in poverty as we as we as we heard in the, the last episode they'll want to use oil and gas to get themselves out and why why shouldn't they why shouldn't they have refrigerators why shouldn't they have ac we've had it yeah and no, i think um you know, certainly the industrial world has gained massively from low cost energy or relatively low cost energy the correlation between energy poverty and fiscal poverty is, is very high and yeah exactly people who don't have affordable energy today would gladly trade uh, a, a polluting you know short-term energy source yeah. for a, a life a, a better life you know this this life not even my children's life and my grandchildren's life and, and so on yeah so they're not, they're not going to give a damn about buying a car or having a fridge if if it's going to raise the temperature for three degrees if it makes their life more comfortable and lets their kids you know have a better life now today yeah stats stats show that we we will take a short-term advancement um for sure and so i think the you know, sort of the challenge for the continuation of humanity on this planet and i do agree the planet will survive out, you know outlive us is how can we lift lives, enhance the quality of life, and continue to keep the planet inhabitable for all animal kind, including us? And, and there's trade-offs there, exactly. And, and I think it's uh, one person's line in the sand is, is very different to another as to what's acceptable and what's not acceptable. So it's you know, how, do, how do we get together and work that out as to what, what is the right balance to be able to achieve both goals and also, you know, lift people out of poverty and and not necessarily keep them in. I think a hundred years ago, you know, the industrial world did use the resources of others uh, to their yeah. own advancement, and it yep. was you know, arguably a very animalistic thing to do. You know, one male lion will kill the children of other lions, kill the cubs, right? Um, mm. So, you know, that that very short-term selfish advancement is is a very animal thing to do. And so, you know, arguably, we're civilised because we have a choice to do something different. Angus hates me using the word lecturing, but I like to use it. But we're lecturing from the point where, you know, uh, you look at Western societies, what it did to whales, right? Take whales, for example, you know, giving, giving fuel, the blubber of whales made oil lamps. And the oil lamps gave people energy and they gave them a chance to advance the society. So it's been going on for hundreds of years. And it seems to be now there's this kind of thing, a whoa, planet, particularly developing part of the world, put the brakes on. But hang yeah. on, what about you for the last 
250 years. I like Stephen Pinker's book, Enlightenment Now, which gives so many facts and figures to your point where you know, lives are lifted, you know, people's quality of life yeah. is uh, higher, infant mortality rate is down, um, average age of, of living is longer, quality of that life is longer, and where we can measure it, happiness is higher you know, uh, in the last hundred years because humanity has taken advantage of the world's natural resources and it's it used them. Yeah, because of fossil fuels and overfishing, because all the things we've done, isn't it, really? Yeah. We're so the, but the, the, the good farmers, you know, knew that if they overworked the land, then they would be fallow in future years. And so I think, you know, the point humanity's now operating where it's consuming probably two planets worth, a run rate of two planets worth, and we've only got one planet. So if we are to be good farmers to continue to be able to live off the land, then you know, putting in some, some good farming techniques at a global scale would be sensible. Angus, you, you've got a concept which we're going to explore that, you, you know, that we need to act, which is just to do a little teaser the global planetary authority give it give us it in a line and we'll be exploring it in a later podcast but what what's the aim of gpa so the, the idea of a global planet authority is that in order to control that human environmental nexus well in order for us to have a healthy biosphere uh, and to allow humanity to progress and to take more people out of poverty more people in the middle class whatever the future of humanity is to have a group of specialists who sit above the nation state in the what is a current void of global governance put a group of specialists up there whose only job is to protect the biosphere and by doing that by laying down global rules everyone on the planet knows exactly what's right and what's wrong and once we're all on let's say that same playing field within those boundaries then the whole of humanity can advance and the middle classes of India and China and Indonesia and Brazil can continue their forward progression and the human race can move forward together within safe biophysical boundaries. It's a classic podcast. There's a, there's a book out there on Amazon. It's very popular and you've written a book about this, but I think what's interesting is, you know, for a banker, you've got your facts and figures, right? I'm, I'm amazed. Well done, mate. It's good. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. your, your first chapter or so is quite terrifying. I mean, give us a little insight to, you know, how fragile we really are. I think your, 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 your stats on topsoil, your stats on where we were, just give the audience a kind of explanation of why we are at this sort of tipping point now. Thank you. It leads back to the, the previous question that you, you posed and you are asking Alex about, you know, the oil companies and a hundred years ago. I just want to make a quick point about that, if I may, and I'll come on to the sort of a, a general, that E minus report card on the biosphere. I think most corporations, when they're founded, are, are thinking often into the current generation and intergenerationally. So when people discovered that they could take a barrel of oil out of the ground, and they realized that it was, I don't know, Alex would be able to tell me, that it was worth 60 horses yeah. in terms of power. And so they were going, oh my goodness, this is, this, is gonna, this is gonna increase people's standard of living. 
and uh, you know free them from the from the drudgery of having to tend to their horses and plow fields by horse etc yeah. so most corporations when they're founded are done on for very altruistic reasons but what has changed is the sheer numbers so if we go back to standard oil and we're talking 1910s the the, the human population was only 1.2 billion people in 1910 and at the end of the First World War, 1.5 billion. End of Second World War, 2.5 billion. 1963 billion. And now we're at 7.6 billion. So it's just really the, the laws of, of, of large numbers that have got us to this point where our scientists are saying, packs, stop. So let me take you through the biosphere for a second. Now, first of all, what is a biosphere? The biosphere comes from, of course, the Latin life sphere. So it's where there is life in and around planet Earth. And, and what I've been taught is you want to think of it in terms of bacteria. And bacteria we've found just below the Mariana Trench, yep. all the way up to 50,000 metres up in the atmosphere. And Felix Baumgartner jumped out of his Red Bull canister. That's right, I remember that, watching it. At 35,000 meters. So about 15,000 meters above where he jumped out, we've found bacteria. So that is the life sphere of planet Earth. And what we've done to it, when our scientists say, hey guys, we're in trouble, hey guys, stop, they're, they're really referring to the changes we've inflicted after the Second World War. Even though the Anthropocene could be argued way back to the Columbus Exchange when we went to the Americas and gave the local population disease, yeah. or it could be argued that the, the, the start of the first Industrial Revolution around 1750, our Earth system scientists, who we have to listen to, really look at after the Second World War. So if we, we look at 70 years and what your stat about 1910, what, about a billion people. Yeah. And now, you know, 100, 110 years later, we're, we're six and a bit more than that already. Correct. So, so is it really, going back to the previous episode, we talked about that hope, that kind of post-war, something happened in these last 40, 50 years that, has accelerated us and that's got to be just more of us on the planet hasn't it pretty much just just our technology manufacturing capacity understanding of chemistry physics all coming together times by 7.6 billion pretty much the other multiplier in there i was just going to add on into that the 7.6 is it and then most advances in quality of life has required more energy consumption per capita per person as well so not only are there more people we're actually consuming more energy per person yeah so it's the, it's the multiplier effect which is you know putting putting the strain on the natural resources that the planet has but the, the quality of life the quality of life has come through that energy is just fantastic and you know, that's going to continue to advance and that's a you know prerequisite yeah, of course. And, that, and that's the balance, isn't it? Because all the things you've just said there, both of you, point to we got smart, we used the resources that made us get better, live longer, produce more of ourselves, get more smart, 
and frankly, it looks like one can't be happening without the sacrifice of the other. So it's, it's inevitable, isn't it? As we continue to breed and live longer and, and want more things, the entity that suffers is the planet. Well, I, 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 I don't think it's necessary that that is the case. I really believe you can do both. Many Western economies, I think we're up to about six, 60 to 70% of GDP is consumption. And then you ask, well, what type of consumption? Well, if naturally we're going down to a lot of stores and we're fast fashion and, 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 and sushi food and, you know, we're, we're taking a lot. But if we all became yoga nuts, um, we're all keen on yoga and a yoga class was a thousand dollars an hour, yep. our GDP would expand, but our industrial metabolism would reduce. So it really, you know, we've got the choices. We certainly have the choice to live lightly on the planet and to reduce our industrial metabolism. And I'm sure Alex will tell us, you know, the advancements in, in energy production so that that correlation between energy usage and, 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 um, and affluence continues up if, if need be, but done with a lighter effect on the troposphere, less carbon dioxide molecules going up to the troposphere. So I, I definitely think it's, it's absolutely positive and possible it's just that we've suddenly got to this point to large numbers and old methodologies and now we need to uh, go to new methodologies go lighter in order yeah. to advance yeah one of the things you, you 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 mentioned in your book that frankly shit me up basically was how little soil we have how, how much soil do we have on the average surface of the earth you know how, how deep does it go down I don't know the answer to that, but I do know that in our, in our fertile valleys, we've got the large, you know, crop producing plains of, yeah. of America and, and places like that. It's 30 centimetres. One, one foot, basically. Yeah. And it takes Mother Nature 500 to 1,000 years to produce uh, three centimetres of topsoil through what's known as the fixation of atmospheric nitrogen. It's the same process of why you put your scraps in a, in a compost bin. Mm -hmm. um, it, they then, nitrogen, atmospheric nitrogen is then fixated and it breaks down and produces essentially topsoil at the end of the day. And mother nature, as I say, takes about 500 to 1000 years to produce three centimeters. And we have scraped off about 40% of that topsoil. Because of the deforestation, because of resources we've used, because of grazing, because of agriculture, all these things. Yeah, primarily scraping. <laughs> you know, if you, if, you put your, if you run your hands through your hair, you know, you're scraping. So we're scraping in terms of our tillage. Um, yeah, I've got, I've got less of that these days. So yeah, there's a lot of and I think this is where this is where you know the the despair element with regard to the degradation of the biosphere, but also the hope, because whilst you and I can disagree about degradation of the troposphere and CO two molecules, mm. when you go right round the biosphere and discuss topsoil or rainforest cover or extinction of animals or Pacific Pacific bluefin tuna is minus 98% in a century. There really isn't one part of the biosphere that, that a single human being doesn't feel very attached to. 
So we end up with a great commonality, I believe. Is it fair, Alex, to say that actually, you know, Future Net Zero, my, my day job running Energy Live News, we, we look, we've, we've been in the energy sector for 10 years, you've been in it a lot longer. And I've really grown to respect what energy's done. You know, I think the energy sector is an amazing sector with some brilliant people in it. But, and in a way, as we've seen with COVID, energy is life. You know, without power, we've got no way of keeping those ventilators going, keeping the labs going, keeping our society fed going in and, and moving around and doing all the things that we take for, for nature, for natural, for ourselves. But is, is the energy, how do I put it? Is energy now the key to solving what the mess we've made? Because it's been clearly the key that got us to where we are in the first place, gave us all this ability to expand ourselves. Yeah, so energy is good. You know, full stop. The, the difficulty we've got at the moment with the, the numbers that we just talked about, the uh, the negative effects from the emissions that's coming from our current energy system is yeah. what's causing us the problem. So, you know, energy is good, and that's why you know it's life enhancing. It, it's amazing, um, and it oversimplifies it. But a lot of it is distilled down into carbon footprint. So, your carbon footprint of your average Mozambican is less than half a ton. Mm. of carbon per year your average carbon footprint of your american is 16 tons per year the average mozambican would gladly trade places with your average american for quality of life absolutely and not the other way around so uh, i i think it's within us to be able to solve that uh, and there's a couple of choices and again the uh, the ipcc sort of talks about the, the choices that we have we can decarbonize the current energy system um, that needs to change to some of our economic fundamentals creating a market and a carbon price and a carbon tax uh, is doable but again the ipcc points out that it requires international cooperation in order to achieve that if one agent uh, is acting in a way which is disadvantageous to another agent uh, then that's a problem so you know how, how do we create that cooperation and at the moment um, it feels like whilst there's some degrees of cooperation in the world we're, we're probably moving away from higher degrees of cooperation than we've seen in the last 30 to 40 years I would say and so again another reason as to why now is important so it's dealing with the the negative byproducts of energy you know energy itself is is wonderful yeah i mean energy i mean my family's from calcutta in india and you know you know in, in 1980 when i went there they had power cuts constantly you know the idea of having uh, uh, cooling through air conditioning was unheard of and there was one television i think in in that worked intermittently now all my family have cars, AC, the internet, water pumps, water filters. No one's sick compared to where they were. They've got an ability to get rid of the mosquitoes that were causing uh, terrible bouts of malaria even just 30 years ago. And a lot of that has come from India's expansion, use of energy, use of coal, use of those resources. So we, we are in a funny position now if we talk about where the science is. We all kind of know what the science is sort of indicating. But the energy we have right now, it's very hard to lecture the world to say, yes, let's get together and do this when we're all such disparate levels of prosperity and also technology. So if you've got the resources, why wouldn't you use it? 
there's a pause there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it, it, you know, isn't Am it? Am being too simplistic? No, I, I don't think it's too simplistic, but we're right now we're talking about energy provision and, but I think it, it does focus on, on, on a very difficult part of this problem in that our, we have nation states, yes, uh, 195 of them, and we're talking about a global asset. Yes. And at any point in time, whether you're talking about energy provision and the degradation of the troposphere, or you're talking about how the rivers are managed, mm -hmm. or the world's rainforests are managed, um, or how the amount of plastic in the oceans, these really are global problems. And what we're struggling with many times, I think, is the fact that our highest unit of organization is national. And so there's that feeling, isn't there? Well, hold on, isn't China producing the most, burning yeah. the most coal, but yeah. at the same time got the biggest solar industry? Isn't India naturally, if its GDP per capita is only $5,000, and it wants to get up to at least 15 or $25,000 per uh, GDP per capita, it will naturally want to burn Australia's coal. Yes. Um, and and, the, and these, these problems, sort of will go on forever at sort of cross comparisons and unless we evolve uh to higher organizational form i believe because we'll always there'll always be someone cheating the system or doing what's necessary to to lift uh their citizens standard of living higher you could say they would be doing it because they're they're trying to look after you know you've got a very isolationist uh you know president for the first for God, God knows, hundred years or so, who's kind of you know got elected on let's make America great again, but also let's look after our own. And many countries have said that's the the job of the old government is to say look after ourselves first. And if that means using resources, if that means using things in the rainforest or the the coal hills or you know using our 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 fish and uh, exploiting our hydropower or building power stations with certain things that we have why wouldn't we do it so we yeah. do have a problem don't we where we can't we can't really stop ourselves wanting to better other people without the consequences being one that affects us all well i think you've you've really hit the nail on the head there because i think the the baseline job of government is security of its citizens yeah and security comes in many forms, right? Energy security, alleviation of poverty, um, military security, and all of those types of things. But we'll keep on coming back to the, the one fact is that Gaia is global. Mm. You know, the, the Earth systems are global. We keep coming back to that problem. So unless we advance into an era of cooperation and governance evolution that we've never seen before I, I honestly believe we'll just keep on bumping up against the, the same ceiling and we'll continue to fail alex just before we sort of come to the end of this one can we can we scientifically set get ourselves out of this we scientifically got ourselves into it we learned that we could burn some black stuff and it produced energy like you said you know and can we now just all get together and just go, hey, we'll just science our way out of it? Yes. 
Um, and then just to sort of substantiate that a little bit. You know, uh, do you know, that's good, mate. That's good enough for us. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's a choice. And it's a choice between yeah, who, who gets what and what lifestyle and for how long. You know, technology, I think, will be the route to solve this, uh, be it decarbonizing the current energy system, be it you know, hydrogen as an alternative or the advancement of renewables as an alternative. The technology exists. I think it needs the collective will and the collective cooperation to make, uh, in the capitalist world, the market exist to to create the innovation and, and to drive all of that change, or the cooperation in a, in a non-market-based system to, to make sure that it pays for that change and lifts lives and continues you know, multi-generational you know, life on, on Earth. Angus, what's your final thoughts on the science bit? Do you agree we can science our way out of it? I think we can lighten our load in all aspects. I think we can immediately go to carbon zero. There's all evidence that we can safely reduce CO2 molecules from the troposphere and get us down to 350 through you know, good tree planting and, 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 and other things. I think we can restore the topsoil. I think we can restore the, you know, the whales and large fish. I, I, I believe there isn't an aspect of the biosphere that humans can't restore. But it also comes down to a point that Alex was making, which is mitigation over adaption. At, at least let's try. You know, let's try as hard as possible to reduce the footprint that we've got and think about the intelligence and knowledge of humans in 100 or 200 years to make even better decisions. But right now, it's very clear. Go light. I think that's a good point to end this episode where I think the next one will look at how we're all connected. The tricky word, it sounds like something that Gene Roddenberry would have come up with, the nexus of the planet, us, science and what we're doing and we'll be looking at that in our next episode remember to subscribe to this podcast hope you've enjoyed it look at futurenetzero.com where you'll find much more about what we're doing around the low carbon transition and from all three of us we'll see you next time you've been listening to gaia says no a future net zero podcast please subscribe to future net zero and this series for more updates Future Net Zero. Better business, better planet.